Green Thumbs Rejoice. It's the Bob Olin Show, brought to you by Dan's Garden Center, located in Dan's Feedback in Superior. The WLSSD's Garden Green. Compost you'll dig. Now, KDAL's Master Gardener, Bob Olin. And away we go with the Bob Olin Show here on a Tuesday. Bob, it looks like uh, summer has returned. It does, and we've been waiting for it, actually. <laughs> we've had we've had some pretty nice weather, been a nice summer. But you know, Dave, uh, actually, statistically, we've been about average. We mm-hmm. haven't had real intense heat. We haven't had, uh, uh, we've had a little bit above average rainfall, but uh, not too much. The difficulty we're experiencing in the growing, gardening and farming world is we got off to a late start because it was so cold in May. So sometimes the statistics and the averages can fool you just a little bit. But we got some warm weather coming here, Dave. I liked your forecast there. Yeah, it is pretty similar today to what it was yesterday, and then it cools off a bit tomorrow as we get a lake wind back again. Lake wind and maybe some showers tomorrow, which wouldn't hurt. Mm -hmm. You know, we have experienced... uh, you know, and everything is really much determined by the weather. That's temperature, of course, and rainfall. Everybody thinks about that. But also humidity, dew points, and evening temperatures, and where those uh, where those uh, prevailing winds are coming from. And then how you get rain and how you dry things down. So what we've had this year is we've had uh, moist periods, with the exception we did uh, run a couple days in a row there, but we've had typically... Uh, we've had moisture, and then we've had bright, clear days, just like we have today. We may get some showers tomorrow, and then another bright, clear day on Thursday, so it dries the plant tissue down. So we really have seen, with uh, with a few exceptions, we've seen a minimal amount of fungal disease. That's usually the big problem. So everybody likes to grow tomatoes. All the gardeners do. The gardeners do. It's kind of interesting because in its history, of course, the tomato is in the deadly nightshade family, Solanaceae, but of course the fruit's never uh, poisonous. And yet it had that reputation for being poisonous originally. So it went from that reputation to all of a sudden being accepted and being the number one garden crop. It's actually not the number one commercial horticulture crop. That would be potatoes, but it is the number, it certainly is the number one home gardener crop and everybody wants to ripen tomatoes it's a warm season crop we're having a little difficulty here because we got off to a late start and cooler temperatures but don't give up dave that's the rule of thumb here you want to hang in there we've got clean plants we've got a lot of good vegetative growth we should have a lot of green tomatoes on the plants at this particular point and with some warm weather and a late frost we might really have a tremendous tomato year yeah maybe a cold spring will translate to a warmer fall that's what we're kind of hoping, yeah. and uh, you know, you're closer to some of the national stories than I am. But I've heard that there is a tomato shortage, and mm. uh, even even so much that they're a little concerned about getting the uh, paste for uh, pizzas and so forth. Oh so my! Those those tomatoes are going to be valuable, and that comes from the fact it's been so dry farther to the south and southwest here. So those tomatoes, when they get here. And, you know, we can ripen some size, so don't get too concerned about it. Uh, we got to get them a little farther along. That's going to require warmer temperatures. So I'm very appreciative. You did a nice job on today's highs, and maybe we get some more like that later in the week, Dave. All right, sounds good. It's uh, going to be a, well, I don't know, pretty nice day throughout the week, actually, with temps in the 70s after the 80s today, so can't complain. We'll take a break, Bob, and be back. The Bob Olin Show is underway here on KDAL. 
Well, Bob, I'm not sure about other apple trees, but mine is loaded with apples and is hanging down, basically touching the ground. Some of the branches are so full of apples. Oh boy! Yeah, so I, I'm, yeah, I'm, you I tried to get some a, of those. I tried to get rid of some of them, but there are just so many; it's it's ridiculous. Well, it's kind of a nice problem to have. I suppose actually, so. Yeah, <laughs> that's Harrelson. It's an oldie and a goodie. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, that was introduced by the University of Minnesota way back in 1922, and it's still uh, one of the very best. It doesn't really have this uh, this real irregular pattern. You get fruit most years, don't you, Dave? Well, it used to be every other, but lately it's been every year, yeah. Now, it'll be interesting. We'll have to follow this next, next year, because mm-hmm. usually when you have so much heavy right. fruit on a tree, uh, there isn't enough energy left over to set the flower buds for next year. So we get a, not only do we get a light year, sometimes we get no fruit. Now, I've got uh, some Haroldson, Harold Red, that bore very heavy last year, and they're almost fruitless this year because uh. I didn't get enough of the fruit off. Commercially, they use different types of uh, materials to drop those mm-hmm. uh, because they want to kind of even the fruit load up. And if people uh, can get at it with it in a situation where it's not dangerous, uh, pull some of that extra fruit off because then that should be done right now because the flower buds will be setting very soon here in the fall if you want to kind of even things out a little bit. But Harrelson is still one of the um, one of the very best varieties. It's a winter hardy. It's a very late apple. So once again, uh, we're all kind of hoping for that uh, nice, warm, late fall, very late frost, although the uh, uh, the apples like that will certainly take a frost. They don't have 28 degrees, but they'll certainly mm-hmm. take 30 or 32 degrees. It actually brings out a little bit of the sugar in them. So yeah. I I think that uh, you're going to be just fine. Uh, Harrelson, of course, that you've got is a, uh, it's a great all-purpose apple. It stores well, but it is very late. We're coming into October when you harvest, typically, isn't it, Dave? Yeah, and they'll probably be a little smaller this year, too, because <laughs> I guess because there's so many of them, and they got started off late. That's true. They're, anytime you've got uh, that much fruit on there, they mm-hmm. have to divvy up the energy that's available. <laughs> the good thing, though, is you've got good green leaf tissue out yeah. there. Not much fire blight. I mentioned the fact we got very little fungal disease. We are seeing quite a bit of uh, bacterial infection on our apples. Uh, there's problems with fire blight out there, and it's yeah, that's a very uh, a good name, I guess, because it almost looks like someone took a blowtorch to some of the leaves. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're all browned off. We get a classic shepherd's crook out at the end of those branches. And uh, that's material. And we're seeing quite a bit of that this year. And that may be because of the uh, the, the real vegetative growth that we've had. I did take a big days? branch off last week. So Excellent. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've had to clean mine up, too. I got all a few right. I'm a little concerned about because you, you really need a uh, pruning pole. And I've had a couple of those, and I was having trouble locating that. Mm-hmm. But you've got to be a little careful on ladders and other things. But you do want to... You want to prune those out. There really are some antibiotics on the on the market, but they have to go in quite a bit earlier. Commercially, they fear this so much that I think they uh, they just spray them routinely uh, to try to try to prevent uh, this because it can devastate a tree. It cuts yields. If it gets real severe, it could actually kill a tree. So we've got to watch fire blight a little bit. We haven't seen that for a number of years. Every year is so different, and that's one thing that's really uh, enjoyable although it can be a little discouraging but enjoyable about this hobby called gardening, every year is going to be different. I guess the weather is different, and mm-hmm. it just seems like it's getting more different, doesn't it? <laughs> All right. Let's go to the phones, Bob, real quick. we got a caller already this morning. Hi, who's this? Do that. Hi, this is Don from Iron River. Hi, Don. Hey, Bob, Hi, Don. I, I grow 
32 different types of vegetables, and I've got about 300 plants, but the deer only <laughs> nipped the buds off my potato plants. Wow. They left your tomatoes alone? Yes, and they only do the um, potato plants, so I'm thinking um, somebody said megalonite or bars of soap. What do you think? Well, uh, melorganite, which is a product of Milwaukee Sewage District, commercial products. you got to be a little careful here there, but there was a time when people would... uh, claim that there was deer resistance there. Uh, they uh, did a big study, I believe it was down at the University of Florida. Those results were never published. I think if they'd been extremely po- positive, we would have all seen them and bags would have been labeled with that. So I don't think that they uh, they make that claim as a product. And I would agree. I'm, I'm not sure that that's, uh, that would be the way to go there. Uh, there are some other, now where you have to be careful if you're making any kind of an application on a on an edible plant, you got to make sure that's on the label. There are some other products out there that are labeled for use on edibles, and some of them are the what we call putrescent egg uh, materials. So there are some materials out there that you can use on edibles. But um, melorganite, uh, that particular product never makes the claim, and I'm sure they would if, if they could consistently see some disease resistance. So, uh, I think I would look for uh, things that are labeled for edibles and uh, uh, where they may claim that there is some, some resistance that way. But I would say you're fortunate and maybe where those potato plants are located with 32 different vegetables, and congratulations, uh, you can run through those for us. Uh, which have been the best this year and which are you struggling with? Well, that's the only thing that they nip the buds off. Yeah, and I, I can't explain that because I, I, I've had just about everything taken down, except for the onion family, garlic and, and the onions they don't like, but uh, just about everything else I've had them nipped off over the years. But, uh, you know, there may be another explanation for that. Maybe you got so many potatoes they're full by the time they get to the uh, tomato plants or something, <laughs> but uh, I'm not sure. I would just count my blessings because they uh, I've had them take down tomatoes in a hurry for me. So and sweet corn and everything yeah, else. Yeah, place out here is a uh, a buffet. Mm-hmm. Where yeah. <laughs> that that's true. They they would really uh, certainly enjoy that. So there are some products out there. Look for the labels and make sure they're they're available for edibles and probably a good idea. The the thing is, uh, you know, the potatoes. If the plants are vigorous, you can prune, let them prune down some. You know, uh, we're getting late in the season. Have you dug any potatoes yet? No, not yet. Get underneath there and see what you got because it was such a good year. It's a tremendous potato garden. I do Yukon Golds, and uh, we got, uh, and I do like potatoes. So I've probably got 12 or 13 varieties of potatoes in the ground. I've started to dig. Uh, it's going to be exceptional. There's no hollow heart. And you'll get that sometimes when you get irregular moisture. We've had enough consistent moisture, so those tubers are rock solid. And Yukon Gold is a variety that uh, has caught people's attention, nice yellow flesh. It is very vulnerable to what we call hollow heart. As a matter of fact, even the certified seed gives them an exception for hollow heart. It doesn't affect the seed except if you would keep it, it would rot from the interior. But certainly it affects the eating quality. It's very vulnerable to hollow heart. But this year, with the consistent moisture we've had, uh, that crop looks exceptional. So 
What I would, I wouldn't at this point, unless they're stripping into the ground. If you have enough plant tissue up there, we're getting later. If you're satisfied that the crop itself, dig a few, get in there and uh, take a few new thin-skinned potatoes and see what you've got. And if in fact uh, you're reasonably satisfied, they're going to continue to grow as long as you got green plant up there. If they nipped a little at the top, I wouldn't be concerned about it. If you are overly concerned, then I would look for some of these products that have a label for uh, for edible. What about human hair in bars of soap? <laughs> I've had that experience. As a matter of fact, we had a friend that uh, he swore uh, that human hair was the answer, so he would sweep two or three barber shops and he'd put them in little non-mesh bags. He invited those of us in the horde industry out to his place for a barbecue. He says, I want to show you how great this works. And the night before, the deer herd came <laughs> through and cleaned out everything. So, <laughs> human hair. And that's the honest truth. It was Dr. Kellum, uh, since gone, rest your soul, uh, rest his soul. And uh, But nonetheless, uh, he swore up and down by human hair. It had to be fresh. So he was the barber's best friend because he swept their floors, mm. put them in nylon net bags, hang them throughout his garden, and for a number of years. Deer are funny. They will move in a kind of a circular manner and pattern, and you can have no trouble at all for two or three or four weeks, and then all of a sudden they can move in. And in that situation, the night before he invited everybody out, uh, he was cleaned ah. out and chomped everything to the ground. So I'm not a big fan of uh, the soaps. I'm not a big fan of the hairs. I am a fan, however, if you need to, of some of these uh, uh, organically-based materials and you want to rotate them. And uh, there are a couple out there with uh, uh, pepper base and uh, progressin egg base that still labeled for use and those that'd be the route i would go but it requires reapplication with every rainfall typically so right in your situation if you got the tubers i wouldn't probably over concerned at this late if they're nipping them down very early but if you got big bushy plants you got tubers set underneath there you still got green tissue if they take off 10 percent over the top doesn't mean a whole lot to the plant now and i just wouldn't worry about that well the organic thing i do is i do urine i spread that around okay and uh, maybe that does work as a deterrent. Uh, certainly, I've heard that as well. I think if it's fresh and so forth, you're willing to do it, that might be effective for you for sure. Mm-hmm. Hey, thanks for thank the call. You, um, yep. Yeah, thank, thank you for the call, and it's a very interesting discussion. Thanks very much. So basically, you want something that uh, smells bad or tastes bad to keep the deer away. It smells bad, tastes bad, yeah. and labeled for edible. <laughs> yeah, right. Get that combination in there. And then uh, you got to rotate because they get used to it. And, oh, okay. Uh, partic- particularly as we come into the fall, uh, they know as the day length, and that's a trigger, as the day length gets shorter and temperatures drop, they got to put tallow on. So their wow. diet changes and they get much more, they can be much more aggressive feeders. So late fall production, if you haven't had a problem, and you say, I don't have a deer issue, you still have to be very careful coming into the fall right. of the year. I'm guessing the best preventative measure is a fence. Uh, good, strong eight-foot fence. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that, that's uh, that's been my answer, and uh, they're not easy. But electric fence work if you if you get it set up properly, and uh, if they get a taste of once they get over it, no, they can clear it. There's something wow. in there they can opt that pretty carefully. So they're pretty smart animals. That's the reason they've survived uh, very well. So we, you know, it's always amazing, Dave. I was having a problem with a woodchuck, and they're not the smartest animals, but they're outsmarting me for a long time. <laughs> so they they could be a challenge. That's another one of the. The challenge with fun parts of gardening, there's always some something out there that would like a little bit of your hard-earned product and labor. 
All right, 934, we'll take another break, Bob. It's the Bob Olin Show here on KDAL. All right, Bob, we're back, and uh, Jack from Hermantown is on the phone. Go ahead, Jack. Good morning, Bob. Hey, good morning, Jack. Uh, first of all, i got to thank you for everything you've done for me in the past. I uh, uh, Between you and Ann Rust, about four years ago, you steered me on to the right people in the right places to do the blueberries right. I, oh, great. I, I had tried and tried to amend my soil and do things like that and didn't seem to work. But when I went out to Cromwell and got from the peat farm out there and and uh, let it sit over the winter and I got it right, it, my blueberries are just absolutely wonderful this year. I got, uh, actually, I picked a gallon of berries off of two plants here two different times. Uh, that makes me feel really good. They are marvelous plants. What what varieties did you decide upon putting in? Well, actually, I transferred them from my old bed. I had tried for years, and I hadn't been very successful. So I had, uh, I guess I got 10 uh, North Blue and 5 Chippewa. Uh, two good, very, very good varieties from the Minnesota Breeding Program. You know, uh, but boy, that's, that's something we can share with people. If they're having difficulty, particularly with blueberries, they're, they're relatively shallow-rooted. So early in the spring, you don't have any trouble transplanting them, I and oftentimes you just got to have the, the a better location. So we really have to have uh, good drainage, full sun, and then acidic soil. And and our pHs are you know six five, six eight. We got to drop them down to four one, four two, and when, then we got to get the right varieties. And you've done it all. So congratulations, Jack. Yeah. Isn't there some satisfaction after being? Uh, kind of stumped for a little while, coming around, and then uh, having a real nice harvest eventually. Yeah, it was it was really a a chore for me to get through in my head. I had to do all that, but it, <laughs> uh, it, it really worked. And then when I sent my uh, sample in, it come back at uh, 4.5. Oh, it did after you got it done, right? Right, yeah. After I got yeah, that's that's excellent. That's where we'd like to be. You know, uh, blueberries are, are a very interesting plant. They're not aggressive, so they don't have aggressive root system. But their competitive a- advantage is they can grow in those low-acid soils, and that's what they really prefer. Other uh, uh, low-acids like that tend, tend to accumulate aluminum, so all the competing plants uh, don't do very well uh, in those low-acids because they, they don't have that tolerance for aluminum that comes out of, out of solution at those lower pHs. So that's the advantage, and... You know, I, I put in another bed. I'm doing a Make-A-Wish project for a young lady, and uh, we put in a blueberry bed. And for beauty, uh, we added the uh, azaleas and rhododendrons in combination. So I think uh, I think that uh, those are the plants uh, that we like that low acid. So congratulations and, and a wonderful harvest this year with the moisture we've had, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. Well, and I, I get to water a little bit uh I got access to a little bit of water, so I I keep them pretty good. I do have one question about the blueberries. Now I'm I like to experiment, and I had a couple of little runners go off to the side where they were really out of my way, so I let them grow. And uh, one of them is like two years old and had about five little sprigs on it, and it was like 18 inches tall. And I probably picked a quart of blueberries off that stupid little thing. <laughs> That's just great. So, so my my question is, can I cut that out of there and make it a plant of its own? Uh, you know, I think you could really. They're not uh, blueberries. Uh, come from cuttings, and the challenge was always. 
to get those cuttings to sprout roots. So they're not grafted like uh, an apple would be or pears or now some of the tomatoes. But uh, okay, so uh, it's going to grow on its own wood tissue, uh, root tissue. Uh, I wouldn't move it right now, though. I'd move it out uh, next spring, very early, right yeah, after the right, snow receipt. I, I would do that. Well, anyway, I, I got to thank you for all the work that you folks did for me because you put me onto some names and everything. And uh, actually, Ann has got some uh, over in uh, Carlton. She's got some information on where I got all my material. But that's uh, just great. Uh, if I can ask one more thing, my tomatoes are awfully lush and yet it's getting late. Should I be taking some of the leaves like off the bottom to get more air in there and to get uh, get them to ripen the fruit better? Yeah, I, I think you should at this point. We're, we're moving in toward the end of August. Pretty good fruit set though. You got good green fruit on there? I've, I've got pretty good fruit already. <laughs> That's good. Uh, some people are struggling. They got in real late and don't have fruit set. They're going to have a real tough time. Here's Here's my rule of thumb. Always take off all the blossoms this time of year. They're not a productive part of the plant anyway. So blossoms all come off. Okay. You can uh, you can thin the top stock. You can take off anything at the lower level, anything that, that is either yellowing due to nutrient deficiency or if you see any disease. Now, you've got to be uh, very careful because condition we've been, I mentioned earlier, with this alternative between rainfall and then drying tissue down, we haven't seen a lot of fungal disease. Fungal disease requires about 48 hours of moist conditions on the leaf surface for the spores to germinate. We, we've been able to dry things down, but conditions can change. So we might, we might um, uh, have to be more concerned about uh, some of the early blight and septoria blight coming here into the latter part of the year. So anything you see down below, if it's uh, just a yellow material, nutrient-deficient, old tissue, you can just take that off, not concerned. Anything that's spotted. Or the term that we use is necrotic, where you can tell it was uh, tissue that was killed by uh, fungal disease, spotted or uh, encapsulated on the leaf tissue. That you have to be very careful with. If you're a good composter, get it in the compost pile if you feel confident that you can run it hot. If not, uh, get it off-site, get it buried, or if you have a municipal service, our sanitary district does a nice job of uh, running hot compost piles so they break down in a hot pile. But just don't let it sit next to the garden. Don't just uh, pull it off and let it sit next to the plants. Uh, we want to make sure because they can be loaded with spores. So the lower material that's diseased can come off or that's weak and, and uh, not a deep green. Up above the fruit line, uh, don't strip it all down. You still need a canopy. You can get sun scald on that fruit. So you can take a portion at this point. You can thin down the upper tissue, the upper leaves, all the blossoms, some of the upper leaves, but still leave a canopy there. It does two things. It's producing the sugars that that fruit needs to ripen, and then it's preventing those plants from being exposed to too much sun and getting uh, sun scald, which can damage the quality of the fruit. A lot of talk there. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. I, I've never done that. I've always let them go. And uh, I know at the end of the year, I have a lot of green plants and a lot of sm or tomatoes and then a lot of smaller ones, and I probably let them go too long. Yeah, very possibly. So you can do it some thinning, but some people will get very aggressive above the fruit line, and I'm, I'm not an advocate of that. you got to have a plant that's producing the sugars, and then you have to have some seed there on the fruit itself. So... Uh, a little bit of moderate pruning, and but the blossoms can all go in that lower, the lower leaves can go. 
So thank you. Hey, thank you thank for the you call. I'm, I'm so pleased that you were successful. There's there's a lot of satisfaction that comes from that hard work. The nice thing about the blueberries is we've got in some of the original crosses plants that are 60 years old now and they're still producing. So if you do it right, you get the right site, you put all the effort in. Uh, in many cases, uh, you can have yield that'll last a long, long time. All right, we'll be back. More of the Bob Olin Show coming up nine forty six. All right, Bob, back to the phones we go. Marilyn has a question this morning. Go ahead, Marilyn. Uh, good morning, morning, Bob. What causes the mildew on the pea plants all the time? Well, <laughs> that that again, <laughs> we see it consistently, and there's a group of fungi that will cause that a whitish appearance. Uh, peas just love cooler conditions. And one of the real problems, as soon as we get warmer temperatures, warmer evening temperatures uh, coming into mid-season, that's why it's so difficult to grow a pea cup in mid-season. It's conducive to these fungi that will attack them. They're like a powdery mildew. As as temperatures warm up, uh, those spores will germinate. So that is really a function of you can do some things like stringing them up, getting them on a trellis, uh, improving the air circulation. But basically, peas are a cool season crop, not because we can't grow them when they're when it warms up, but because they become very vulnerable to some of these diseases as we as we move into the summer months. So it's like a powdery mildew. It's a little different what we call a race, but nonetheless, it uh, it's almost always with us every year. And I really don't know any way to avoid that except uh, plant very early and then try to plant. Uh, you might want to seed it uh, two, three weeks earlier, but try to pull up a fall crop as well when temperatures cool down. Okay, I have mine all in a raised garden, which is about 6 by 24 feet. So they're a couple feet above ground. I put them on the south side of the garden so they would get, you know, drier, keep drier. And I have... That's good tomato cages that they uh, out for them to climb up. <laughs> so they're you're not laying down. Right. You know, I, I, <laughs> I did yeah, as much as I thought I could, and I've not sprinkled them. I've made sure that I watered only from the bottom. <laughs> you're doing, but, you know, you're doing everything right. You're a good gardener, and you put quite a bit of effort. Um, I've tried to grow, uh, grow them through the summer months, and I, I really struggle with the same issues. So okay. I've gone back to I'm going to take, and it, it's a function of as temperatures warm, See, we always have these spores. These fungal spores are always there, and they're blowing in the wind, literally. And it's just a question of getting the right kinds of conditions for them to germinate and then attack the plants. And typically, uh, those that are dedicated or those that attack pea plants uh, require slightly warmer evening and and, uh, daytime temperatures. And then it's almost a foregone conclusion that you can have a problem mid-season. So I focus, and I'm satisfied we're getting a nice quality pea crop. I'll do multiple plantings in the spring and then try to pull something out in the fall as well. But How I, early I can you plant up, them? I'm kind of given. I'm giving up on the mid-season. I go in early. Uh, you can, uh, you know, they will tolerate uh, the soil temperature in the 45-degree range, in the 40-degree range. So I will go in as, as soon as the frost is out of the ground. Okay. And they'll... And then I'm happy with the uh, the crop I can harvest at that time, and I don't try to fight the disease mid-season. Right. Hey, thanks yeah, for the call. I got a lot of peas on there, but... <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. It's, it's just that uh, they, are, they are vulnerable as temperatures warm, 
And actually, we've we've actually been able to extend the season a little bit this year. I've noticed on what I've grown, uh, we've been harvesting later, uh, and that's because it really hasn't been intensely warm. It's been cooler. But I'm seeing the same thing. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing a lot of disease there. As we're seeing powdery mildew on uh, the vine crops well, and that's kind of a function of uh, warmer conditions, warm, moist conditions. Okay, thank you very much. I hope thank that you. helps a yeah. little bit. Then. Let me ask you this. You, do you like edible, the edible potted peas, and uh, or do you grow a shell pea? I have shells, the shells, yeah. Oh, good for you. So you're willing to shell them out. Well, you got to try some yep. of the edible potted as well. You know, the sugar and sugar bones, Cascadia. There's a number of really great edible potted peas as well. Very good. Thanks again okay. for the call. Appreciate it. 954, Bob. Uh, I wanted to ask about uh, pumpkins and uh, squash. How are they looking this year, and what do we got to do to get them going? <laughs> they're setting, they're setting, uh, setting fruit, and uh, once again, warm season crops. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need a nice uh, late frost, and we need uh, warmer conditions. But you did a good job this week. The foliage is exceptional, and you got to—that's the factory. So we've got it all set up. Uh, they're slow. As all I'll say at this point, got our fingers crossed. We do have a lot of good product coming in at the Bill's Farmer's Market, though, Dave. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. uh, we got one coming up already tomorrow. We do. Wednesday afternoons, 2 to 5. That's actually a great market to get to because uh, it's not as busy, Mm -hmm. and you can buy product right before before that evening meal. Fresh, fresh zucchini, fresh cucumbers. We do have some tomatoes coming in. Uh, like everyone else, we're a little challenged, but we cover and we do other things to try to uh, try to bring them in a little earlier. And there's literally no comparison between what you're going to buy grown locally and what you buy in the supermarket. Uh, you know, we we're all growing them in mineral soils. They pick up the flavors, they pick up the juices. It's just this far north, a little bit challenging to ripen, but they are coming in. So we have some tomatoes for folks. Uh, no sweet corn yet that I'm aware of, but that's coming too. So we're just a little bit delayed on some of the real warm season crops. But the potatoes are exceptional. The onions are exceptional. The uh, uh, Certainly beets have been exceptional. Uh, string beans, you know, lettuces, the leafy greens, the chards. Uh, we've got some growers that are doing just a tremendous job. So that's the Ruth Farmer's Market. Uh, locally owned, the market where you have to talk. Uh, the farmer has to be there, so you're talking to the farmer. And uh, that's uh, uh, 14th Avenue East and 3rd Street, 2 to 5 on Wednesdays. Great time to shop. And then, of course, uh, 8 till noon on Saturdays. Great family-friendly environment for everyone. We want to invite everyone down. Sounds like there might be peas available, too, are you? Yeah, for some folks, <laughs> uh, there, there certainly are some peas available. All right, good. And uh, so those will be available. We've got a total of about uh, 30 growers, so there's... Somebody always has something down there. Too. All right, sounds good. That's tomorrow, and then again on uh, Saturday, too. Bob, we got a couple of minutes. You want to wrap things up? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. You know, every season a little different. I'm I'm just so pleased. Uh, you know, last week uh, we had um, Julie Overham that developed the uh, Cherry Frost, a remarkable life story. I, I just have so much admiration for people that make this commitment. She left her career as a med tech. She became a rose breeder just because she loved roses and took her, I believe, a total of 27 years for her first introduction. I guess she's got a beauty and cherry frost. You know, you talk about uh, the apples. There's a tremendous history there on uh, Minnesota. We can't grow any, couldn't grow an eating apple in Minnesota or Wisconsin. Had a few very hardy crabs, but nothing that was really that edible. And uh, then a gentleman in the name of Peter Gideon came in uh, from Illinois 
and moved here for health reasons. Now, that's kind of interesting, I thought, but moved to the north for health reasons, reasons and uh, started looking and crossing apples. There was a big push. This was right around statehood time, 1854. He came into Minnesota, and uh, he started doing some crosses. The remarkable thing, his life's commitment was to develop Minnesota apples, and um, he had to make a decision. Uh, coming into the winter, he had to buy a winter coat or buy some apple seed from Maine, and he bought the apple seed from Maine. And uh, about 14 years later, in his case, he introduced the first apple called Wealthy, not named because it made him wealthy. He died penniless. Uh, oh, no. as I looked into that. But he, this was his wife's name, and she put up <laughs> with his rather Spartan existence for this horticulturist down there on off Lake Minnetonka and introduced the Wealthy apple. It's still in the trade today. This is a hundred and uh, 20 years, 140 years later. And uh, so the oldies but goodies, just like Harrelson Apple, there are some varieties that last a long, long time. So look for wealthy. I planted a few just because of the history of the of the apple. <laughs> Fantastic. But Peter Gideon, uh, a great pioneer and an individual that made a tremendous commitment and never profited a bit from it, but he did make an immense contribution. So there's some some satisfiers in life, just like our caller Jack from Hermantown. After all that struggle, he's got blueberries. So it's worth the effort uh, long-term, Dave. All right, Bob, we'll be back again next Tuesday to do it again. Thanks. Thank you, Dave. The Bob Olin Show has been brought to you by Dan's Garden Center. Located in Dan's Feed Bent in Superior. And by WLSSD's Garden Green. Compost you'll dig.